ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Kristen Lopez, and this episode, we are looking at all things TCM Classic Film Fest, showing off the audio that I recorded while I attended this year, interviews, and all the intros from all the movies that I saw. So I'm going to let the actual footage do the talking, but in case you want to know the order in which things go, my first interview is with TCM's head, Jennifer Dorian. That's followed by the introduction to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, moderated by Alicia Malone. After that, it's a brief interview with Charlie Tabish, who's in charge of scheduling the movies that play at the TCM Classic Film Festival, followed up by the introduction to The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, introduced by Tara McNamara. Then you're going to hear a brief interview with TCM czar of noir, Eddie Muller, who has a special message for our co-host, Samantha Ellis followed by his intro to The Postman Always Rings Twice. Then there's a brief interview with me and Disney animator Floyd Norman, followed by his Q&A along with fellow Disney animator Jane Bear, moderated by Mindy Johnson, right before the lead-in to Sleeping Beauty. Then there's a brief interview with Patty McCormick, the star of The Bad Seed, followed by Eddie Muller's intro to 1948's Open Secret. So hopefully you guys like the audio. There will be one more episode filled with the rest of the audio that will be coming up soon. Till then, enjoy. What's the classic film or actor that opened you up to loving classic cinema? Without a doubt, Gene Kelly. I was a, a young girl, and my brother and my mom and I would watch Singing in the Rain over and over. And we would make, you know the scene, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. We, as little kids, we would make fun of that scene and love it. And then I just sort of fell into the Gene Kelly rabbit hole. He was so athletic and so creative and so daring. I mean, a lot of the scenes for dance with him, as you know, were not um, typical studio fare. And he was really a fighter, I think, for art. So I always admired him and his movies. And then that just got me into musicals, and then that gets you into period pieces and so on and so forth. I also love Little Women, all of them. Little Women is so good. (laughs) I just relate to it. I have definite favorite versions, but they're all great. They're all great. Well, and with the the festival this year, it being the 10th, I mean, working with everybody, what's it like keeping the festival fresh and giving giving people new avenues in which to explore? Well, as you may know, I'm the business person, and so I said, let's put some more money into the budget this year. Year. Let's if everything. Let's pump it up just a little bit, make it a little more special because it's literally a tenth celebration. And then the fact that we're turning 25 is, you know, even more reason to push out the boat. Exactly. And then we invited Ted Turner, as you well know. So we want to look our best. I feel like it's our birthday, our wedding, our bar mitzvah, all in all one. <laughs> well, I'm excited for yeah. So everything the creative happening. team just keeps bringing great ideas forward. There's, as you know, there are always enough movies, enough ideas, exactly. enough enough um, ways of entering into things. Yeah. So. so. Well, thank you oh, so yeah, much. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks. Our host for the evening, Alicia Malone. Oh. Alicia is a host of TCM, but more importantly than that, she is a fan of foreign film and she's a passionate supporter of women in film. In fact, she's given a pair of TED Talks on the subject that you should check out, and she's written a couple of books Backwards and in heels and the female gaze. Ladies and gentlemen, Alicia Malone. Woo! 
CCM Classic Film Festival. I'd love a quick show of hands. Who here attended? Oh, wow, quite a few of you. Snaps to you, it's an incredible experience. This is my fourth time at the film festival and it's very quickly become my favorite time of year. I love being here with all of you and watching these movies on the big screen. It's just such a wonderful experience. And this is very special because of the 25th anniversary and the 10th film festival coming together on closing night that is gonna be a wonderful party. But you've chosen a great way to open the festival with Gentlemen Fur Blondes from 1953, directed by Howard Hawks. and Jane Russell as Laurel Lee and Dorothy Shaw who travel from America to France and get up to a whole lot of trouble on their journey there. And this is a very special film for me personally because this is genuinely one of the films I saw as a kid which spurred me to love classic film, to find out more about classic film, to read about classic film stars, and it became so important in my life. I remember me and my sister wore out the VHS tape by pressing play, pause, play, pause, trying to learn all the Jack Cole choreography <laughs> and learn all the dialogue, and even, ironically enough, I learned the intro to the film Off by Heart, which was given by Bill Collins, who's a film critic in Australia. Although he got, he got a quote, quote wrong when he did the intro, and so I always think of that when I sit down to write my scripts for TCM, trying to make sure I don't get anything wrong. But this is part of our celebration of 20th Century Fox, and there's so much to celebrate about this film. The characters first appeared in a novella written by Anita Luce called The Diary of a Hasty Traveller, which led to her book, Gentlemen Fur Blondes. There was a silent film, a stage musical, and eventually this 1953 production. And it's so interesting because the character of Laurel Lee is so tied to what we think of when we think about Marilyn Monroe. She is the funny, sexy, little bit clueless, little bit smart character, and especially that big musical number, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, has become so incredibly iconic and exactly what we think of when we think of Marilyn Monroe. But production chief Daryl F. Sonic actually wanted Betty Grable for this role. In the end, it came down to the fact that Betty Grable was ancient at age 37. <laughs> Ouch. Um, and also, it was more cost-effective to have Marilyn Monroe. This was her 17th credited feature film role, but she was still virtually unknown. She was still making her name. She wasn't yet this big star, and she was still quite insecure about her acting. She often showed up late, but on this film, she worked really hard and often stayed late as well to go over the choreography and the musical numbers. And she contributed one of the best quotes in this film, which is, I can be smart sometimes, but most men don't like it. Thing or two about that. My favourite line in, in the film is the, uh, you know, the chaperone's job is to make sure that no one else has fun, but nobody chaperones yes. the chaperone. That's why I'm so right for this job. <laughs> Said by Jane Russell as Dorothy Shaw, and Jane had such a ball in this film. She was borrowed to loaned out to Fox for this movie. She wanted to work with Howard Hawks, and she uh, is so such a great sport, you know, in that. Musical number, you'll see, Ain't There Anyone Here For Love, where she gets tumbled into the pool, but she continues on with the song, she smiles, she finishes the tape, 
And that was actually reshot later on, but they ended up going with that take, and I love that moment in the film. And I think above everything, you've got the you've got the beautiful costumes, you've got the makeup, you've got the hairstyles, you've got the great stars, you've got someone named Malone, which is always good. But the thing that I love about this film, which continues to be so special to me, is the female friendship that's at the centre of it. Dorothy and Lorelai, they are complete opposites, but they complement each other. They're not competitive at all, and they're completely loyal. Even when Lorelai gets Dorothy into a whole lot of trouble, she sticks by her side, and I love watching that. And I think you can also tell the real chemistry behind the friendship of Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe that developed on this film. So to, uh, to end this, I, I wrote a little thing. Um, and this will dispel any myth you might have, any notion that I am a cool person. Because I, I'm definitely not. Um, I won't sing it for you, but just imagine this to the tune of Two Little Girls from Little Rock. I was just a little girl in Australia, and I felt like I lived on the wrong side of the equator. But then one day, a glamorous film I did see, it captured my heart, and inspired me to be a classic film lover and aspiring curator. <laughs> then in high school, I started my own film club, but to my screenings of this movie, nobody was there. Like a little lost lamb I roamed about, I discovered TCM and I found out that my kindred spirits are truly everywhere. I was young and ambitious, and a move to Hollywood seemed auspicious. So I worked really hard all around the clock, and I dreamt of the moment I would finally get to talk with fellow film lovers for whom this movie cut through to their little movie-loving hearts. Like my little movie-loving heart in Australia. 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 This year is the 25th anniversary, as we all know, of TCM. You know, for you, what's the movie or the actor performer that fostered your love of classics? Great question. Oh, I do. So, the actor has to be Cary Grant. Okay. When I was a boy and I would watch movies, you know, I was an only child, I watched movies on TV all the time. In my mind, I wanted to grow up to be like Cary Grant. No. Everybody did. Yeah, exactly. So, one of the things when becoming an adult for me was realizing, you're not Cary Grant and it's okay. But because of that, I always wanted to see more and more of his movies. And so, I guess, as an actor, he's the one. As far as the movie, there's no specific movie. I'm a huge Woody Allen fan, to be honest, and so, my movie of all time, misdemeanors. I saw that a little bit older, but I think a lot of his movies made me, because he, he referenced classic movies in a lot of his films, and that made me want to seek out other classic movies. Do you have a favorite Cary Grant movie? Boy, I mean, there are just so, so many. many options. I, yeah, I mean, I'll get, I, I will say His Girl Friday, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think of something else in five seconds, but, but that's the one I'll say for now. When I have to throw out the serious question, classic film access is slowly eroding with streaming, and TCM is great because it's giving access to the masses. You know, how do you look at classic film in this era of, of change and discussion of access? It's a big question, and I don't think we know yet how that's going to play out. Streaming is going to become a place for classic movies and classic movie fans. We were trying to build that with Filmstruck. And for various reasons that didn't, uh, you're, you're, don't, you know, you're, you're, you're preaching, believe me, we're on the same page. 
So um, something's going to come along, and hopefully that's through us, and hopefully we can um, work with that. But we have new masters, new owners, and we're going to try to work with them and see what we can do, because somewhere, somehow, that's going to happen. I just don't know yet. Thank you for stopping. I appreciate it. Tara specializes in family films and analyzes them on websites such as Common Sense Media and 80s Movie Guide. Her passion for film business was born when she and her then eight-year-old son discovered how much they loved watching classic films together on TCM. Before I bring her out, I would first like to introduce someone who will tell you a bit about the print you will see tonight, and that is the director of the Academy Film Archive and friend of TCM, Michael Porgozelski, thank you. Yes, it's great to see so many people out here tonight. And I just want to join Genevieve in, in thanking everyone who put so much money and time and sweat and tears into making the booth here at the Egyptian Theater Nitrate capable. I think it's important that we regain our ability to look back at nitrate prints. Sometimes maybe earned and sometimes maybe more nostalgic than realistic. So let's judge for ourselves and actually screen the prints so that we can take any illusion out of it and be able to see for ourselves what a nitrate print looks like. And I also think that it's great that it puts us directly in connection with the film itself. This is exactly how audiences in 1947 saw The Bachelor and The Bobby Soxer. And it's even more special to be screening this particular print because this nitrate print came to the Academy Film Archive from Shirley Temple herself. Oh. Her collection to the Academy, it not only included films, home movies, um, correspondence, scripts, she also gave uh, a couple of her dresses, costumes that she had saved over the years. And in particular, which is so cool, the little uh, director's, eight-year-old size director's chair that Daryl Zanuck had made for her with her name on the back, as well as a set of four practice steps that Bo Jangles gave to her to practice the dance number in The Little Colonel, which you should go see. It's running here at this year's festival on Saturday morning. And Shirley Temple Black's generosity didn't stop just with her objects and with her collection. She gave a very generous donation to the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures that's going to be, that is being built at the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax in the Old May Company building. The gift that she gave means that the education center, the very first place that children and students will experience the museum, will be known as the Shirley Temple Black Education Center. little bit about the film before we dive right in. Thank you all for coming and I hope you enjoyed having me. Bobby Sox. So The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, a high school girl crushes on a middle-aged man and so they date at her family's insistence. Is this a movie that would be made today? Oh no, we are not doing that anymore. <laughs> it's a bit of a jaw 
dropper. You might cringe a little bit. Um, it, you know, in 2019, with Time's Up, no studio would do something like this. No actor would take the role. In fact, there is a comedy that's, that comes out tonight, Little, a 38-year-old woman's in a 13-year-old's body. She comes on to two men, and they both run <laughs> as fast as they can. But you might think, you know, it was 60 years ago. Times were different. No, just so you know, in 1947, still wasn't okay. And that is evidenced in the opening dialogue at the kitchen table. They talk about an old man running away with a 16-year-old and how long he was sentenced for. <laughs> and it's also gratefully evidenced in the hilarious reactions from Cary Grant, who is so uncomfortable with the whole situation. What's great about it is that he isn't just revolted at the idea of dating a minor. He is bored at the childish things that she that she enjoys. The thing that's interesting to me is like is that Shirley Temple, you see with um, the immaturity you see with Susan, her character, is in sharp contrast to Cary Grant's sophistication. And you know, movies have the power to influence us. So there's a subtle message in here to adult men. Even if you can, you don't want to date a teenager. <laughs> It wasn't okay, that doesn't mean it wasn't done. And around the same era, Errol Flynn faced down some legal uh, troubles for romantic liaisons with teenagers, and as soon as he was exonerated, he ran off with an 18-year-old. <laughs> and then more innocently, at the time of filming The Bachelor and Bobby Soxer, Shirley Temple was married. She got engaged to a 24-year-old Army Sergeant, Jack Ager, when she was 16. And Shirley Temple, national treasure, wrote in her autobiography about several encounters with old male Hollywood producers who gave her a run around the desk when she was as young as 12, but more specific to this story, at barely 17, David O'Selznick, her boss at the time, she went to tell him she was engaged, and uh, Selznick tried to entice her by saying, actresses who hold out are loaned out. She escaped. <laughs> Selznick paid for her wedding, and uh, she got loaned out a lot, in fact, on this film. <laughs> in this film in particular, Shirley Temple has a lot in common with her character Susan, in that they both desperately want to be seen as grown-ups. At 17, Susan wants to marry Richard, an older man, and Shirley Temple had gotten married at 17 to, you know, a 24-year-old, he was an older man. And the reason that she got married, she admits, is because she and her high school classmates had a competition for who would get married first. She won. <laughs> like at the time that she accepted Sergeant Jack's proposal, uh, she was actually wearing a promise ring to her high school sweetheart. And the reason she, you know, she thought I could love either one of them, but she picked Sergeant Jack because he had a better chin and his ring had a diamond. <laughs> At the time of filming, though, their marriage was not going well. They were taking lots of publicity photos, they were in the magazines, showing what a great marriage they were having, but it was not going well. And so, still being childlike, she kind of did what she thought a good marriage was. She took cooking classes, met her husband at the door with a drink and dinner on the table, and all the while she was trying to get more mature roles that would allow her to transition out of being a child actor because she was well aware of how many actors didn't want to start opposite of her because of her age, like Joseph Cotton, or would make a crack at her about her age, like Ginger Rogers, or in the case of The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, Ray Collins um, got angry with her while filming because Okay, well, she kind of deserved it because <laughs> she told him he was too old to be working. And he got mad. 
a dirty little rhymes with which. <laughs> and she didn't mind the B word. What she minded was the little. That really resonated with her. And she started thinking about how could she change her appearance? How could people see her differently? And you see this in the film that she wanted, like Susan, to wear her hair up. Um, so she asked the makeup artist to do it for the scene that she does with Cary Grant and a very intimate scene. And so they put the hair up and the, the makeup artist says, unacceptable, your ears are sticking out. So he glues them back and promises it'll last a few hours. They start filming the scene and then um, Carrie Grant and director Irving Reese start quarreling, which was a common thing on this set. And time wears on and Shirley's under the, the warm lights and then they start filming again. And so they're doing the close-ups and this is really like a you know, great moment and all of a sudden there's this loud sucking sound and her ears spring out and goop goes flying. They re-glued it, but you'll notice it and you'll see the ears pin back in the scene. The last thing I want to tell you is that Collins wasn't the only one who got frustrated with Shirley Temple. The, the funny thing is, the reason this movie got made was because it was following the end of World War II, and there was just this need for light, fun films that had a, a growing focus on youth. But Shirley's young idea of fun got under everyone's skin. She was a prankster. With Myrna Loy, she annoyed Myrna Loy because she would do something where she would like block her shot, and she thought it was funny. Well, Myrna Loy didn't. Um, <laughs> And then she really, you know, got under Cary Grant's skin. So they were filming the scene, you know, he went off to go do something, and Shirley Temple was entertaining the crew. She started doing this comical impression of Cary Grant, and they're laughing and laughing, so she's carrying on and, you know, leaning on the dick, and then everyone stops laughing. And it was that Cary Grant is standing behind me right now, isn't he, moment. <laughs> he was, and he demanded she be fired. <laughs> but who could be mad at Shirley Temple? So she went and she apologized, and he said, it's okay. And, uh, everything was good until there, she, she did a pretty good impression of him. What's interesting too is that you see that, in, that Richard Nugent picks up on this youthful spirit. Shirley Temple was just acting like a teenager at the time. And, he pick, and so when he walks in to annoy Susan's uncle and he starts with, hey, you remind me of a man. A <laughs> <laughs> man. A <laughs> man with the power. And he's really just doing that same youthful thing that was at the time. So now today's films, it's expected for actors to prank each other on the film set. So Shirley Temple was just a trendsetter. The All's Well That Ends Well, this movie was one of the top money makers of 1947. They instantly repaired uh, Carrie Grant and Myrna Loy together in another film, and Shirley Temple, her comeback started gaining more steam, and Sidney Sheldon's zini screenplay won an Academy Award. Oh. So from 1947, enjoy the nitrate friends of the bachelor and the My podcast co-host is obsessed with you. Thinks you're awesome. Is that a good thing? That's a good thing. It's a okay. very good thing. So, would it be possible for you to say hi, Samantha, so I can make her very, very upset? Hi, Samantha. Thank you. <laughs> what's the classic film or performer that got you into class? Like, what's the gateway for you in terms of loving classics? Well, the gateway for me when it comes to film noir was a movie called Thieves Highway okay. with Richard Conti and Valentina Cortese, which when I introduced Day for Night uh, here, which is another important film for me, uh, Valentina Cortese is in that film as well, so I'm very eager to ask Jacqueline Bissett. You were you were bummed last, last year that she Which did, I yeah. hope that she will explain what happened, because I don't like the fact that a lot of people said some... Yeah. not so nice things about her online and they didn't know the reason that she wasn't here which was not 
good. But I'll let her explain all that. So I, I, it was the, all the noir stuff that really turned me. You know, Bogart. When I first time I saw In a Lonely Place, for you know, Thieves Highway with Richard Conti and Valentina Cortez, and then it was just all movies with big night city street in the title. I was I was hooked on all those. Right, I'd cut school and go watch them. So that was pretty much it. And honestly, I think uh, one of the things that got me this gig at TCM was that when we talked early on when we were talking and they saw my festivals and everything, I said to them, you know, film noir is the gateway drug to classic cinema. It is. And, and I think they were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So, but I have to ask a silly question. I love the promos for Noir Alley. Yeah. You know, all the mock noir yes. type and the one-liners that you got going on. I think those are great. What are those like to make you seem like a mess They're fantastic. Uh, I wish I could... The, the two women who do them are right around the corner there. They're shooting stuff here. It's yeah, Christian Hammond and Lindsey Graham, and they are fantastic. And we have the best time plotting those out, and it's 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 fun. The, the one-liners, do you, is that like written by somebody else, or you get to come they, up with? We, we come up with a general idea, and then they let me put my spin on it. Oh, okay. Is there one? Is there one lately that stuck out to you that? Is there a one-liner that stuck out to you? Well, the one, the one that everybody comments on that I love to uh, say that was an improvisation was when I say, "Do you watch Noir Alley uh, at midnight? You know, or Sunday morning?" And then I pour the drink in the. That was just ad lib. I just did that. I love that sort of thing, like the the noir and modern day setting. Like I'm all for that. I think we need more of that. I agree. I agree. Exactly. I'll quote you on that. Please do. Okay. Thank you. Samantha will be very, very happy. Thank okay, you. very good. It's good to see you. <laughs> I, like, I like the way you did the introduction because you named me right at the top, and then these people give me a big round of applause, and then I get another round of applause when you introduce me at the end. So, well done. Very well done. It is great to almost see all of you this morning. <laughs> Only like these three rows in the middle are all I can possibly Okay, I'm happy to be here, and I was telling Yakov that when I stand over there on that ramp, that is my home away from home, because I have been doing my own film noir festival in this venue for 21 years. You, you may not know this, and I'm, I just love telling this story now that, you know, I've been doing it 21 years, TCM is here 10 years. In the very early days, People say, how did you get this gig on TCM? And I say, well, it's interesting. When they did their first festival in Hollywood, I had the dates they wanted. I was in this theater. They had to give me something for me to give up those dates, right? So it's very, very noir. I got to introduce some shows at the festival, and they got the dates that they wanted. So uh, it has worked out beautifully ever since. I am always before or after the TCM festival, but they sort of get to pick the dates they want because it's a few more moving parts to this show than the one that I do. Anyway, we are here to celebrate The Postman Always Rings Twice. I am going to say that this novel uh, that the film is based on, which was published in 1934, is actually the cornerstone of what we know as noir. Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon was published in 1929. It had a lot to do with creating and popularizing the whole hard-boiled movement in American fiction, but it really is The Postman Always Rings Twice that is truly the first work of noir fiction in America. James M. Cain, the author, was a newspaper man 
who came to Hollywood to try his hand as a screenwriter, and he was not good at it. He really never quite figured out how to write a really good, coherent screenplay. But before he gave up on his Hollywood adventure, he decided to take one little last blast at this thing. Jumping off from the story of Ruth Snyder, who was executed, uh, electrocuted, in prison for her, her part in a plot to murder her husband. And that sort of formed the basis of his idea. He wrote this manuscript called Barbecue. And that was the, that was the original title. It wasn't even barbecue spelled out, it was BBQ. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish it stayed that title. Uh, and, and there is an apocryphal, I believe, story about it became the postman always rings twice because it had to do with all the rejections that he was getting, and he would like wait for the postman to show up at the house with the latest rejection letter. And whenever it was bad news, it would you know it's like well the postman always rings twice, you know. And I, don't, I don't know if I believe that story, but it sounds good. MGM bought the manuscript. In 1934, but of course, 1934 in Hollywood is famous as the first year of the really enforced production code. So there was no way uh, that the postman was going to be made post-1934. It's interesting to think about what would have happened if James M. Cain had written that novel in 1932. Then there might be a pre-code version of this movie that would, I'm sure, be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> But MGM bought it and sat on it for years and years because they could not figure out how to bring so nasty a book to the big screen. This story violates like eight of the ten things in the production code and the Bible. <laughs> so finally, uh, thanks to Billy Wilder, who made Double Indemnity, also written by James M. Cain in 1943, he showed how to do this, how to get these stories up on screen and work around the code. And at that point, MGM, realizing they had to cash in on this rising tide of noir in Hollywood, uh, MGM said, okay, we're, we're gonna do this. And they did it in a very interesting way. This is a very sanitized version of the novel. And the novel had been adapted for the screen twice before this movie, but not in America. It had been done in France in 1939 as La Dernière Chanel by Pierre Chanel, and uh, the husband's character was really beefed up because Michel Simon was a very popular actor in France, played the husband, so there's much more about that character in the French film. Then in 1941, Lucchino Visconti in Italy did an unauthorized adaptation of The Postman Always Rings Twice. They never bothered to ask about the rights to the book or anything. He just made the movie. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. It, it's a neo-realist version of film noir. But then in 1946, MGM mounted this production, which is anything but neo-realist. This has the Hollywood gloss all over it. And one of the ways they figured to sell this movie was making it a woman's picture. Right? They, they wanted to really play up Lana Turner. They made her ultra-glamorous. Cora, the woman in the novel, is almost a slattern working in this roadside diner. It's very, very earthy. But they decided, no, 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 this is an MGM picture, so we're going to have this look really, really beautiful. And they took the character of Nick, her husband, and changed him from this very abusive Greek guy 
into the very lovable and huggable Cecil Kelly. <laughs> That's really bizarre. It's like, they're, they're going to kill this guy? <laughs> In some ways, it makes the murder even worse. And the production of this film is somewhat legendary. John Garfield, who had a libido, shall we say? And Elena Turner was not lacking in that department either. And, and there are many stories about that actually happening. And then it did, and then it was like, okay, well, that happened. It, I was thinking about this when I watched Harry Met Sally last night, because I think that was kind of like the Lana Turner, John Garfield thing. It was like, okay, well, that happened. They didn't have a Harry and Sally ending. The film was a massive hit for MGM, and it is really one of the landmarks of film noir because of its success. So Double Indemnity was a Kane story that was a massive success. Postman Always Rings Twice, massive success. Oh yeah, he wrote another little one called Mildred Pierce. They did it Warner Brothers, another massive success. So this was a guy who had failed as a screenwriter, left Hollywood, moved back to Maryland, wrote these books that all became huge hits because he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. I do the show of hands. How many people have not seen The Postman Always Rings Twice? Okay, that's pretty good. That's a good sampling. So as I always say, you people are in for a super treat today because you're going to see this for the first time the way it is meant to be seen on a big screen surrounded by like-minded people at this fabulous festival in 35 millimeters. You're going to watch two gorgeous people doing really, really bad things. <laughs> On the bottom line, people say, why does water survive? And I say, because you get to see really gorgeous people doing really, really bad things. <laughs> it's kind of the essence of it. So this is the story that started it all, and the film that is one of the cornerstones of film noir. The postman always ranks twice. There. No idea. It's an honor to talk to you. I am oh. a huge Disney nerd, so this is awesome. Well, I'm I'm the biggest Disney fan ever. Really? I was gonna ask, like, how how is it being a Disney fan and working there? Like, is it a weird? I don't know. I would think it would be weird. But maybe it's no, not. it was it was awesome. I had a chance to fulfill a childhood dream. I wanted to work for Disney. I even had the chance to work with Walt Disney. Yes. And that was more than I ever expected. So, you know, the dream come true. We have to ask the generic question. What was Walt like, you know, in terms of working in that time, in that atmosphere, and doing all the amazing things you were doing? I have to fangirl right now. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 no, I'm just a big Disney geek. I'm just a fan. Story and I started yeah. together at Disney. Oh! Wait, yeah, oh, we, awesome. we were kids together. We went, yeah. we went to we the same went to school. Really? Yeah. And then we started at Disney at the same time. See, that's, that's the dream. It's my dream to... But to, but to answer your question, Walt was very demanding as a boss, but he was a very nice guy. I liked him a lot. He was, he was always nice to everybody. You know, even though he was a tough boss, he was tough, but he was very nice. Well, do you have a favorite Disney animated movie? It doesn't have to be one you, you know, involved with. No, no, it's one that I saw as a child. It's Pinocchio. My favorite Disney film is Pinocchio. I love that movie. Absolutely love it. The animation of that is breathtaking. It is, it is. It is. The little 
Little Mermaid's mine since I was like. 30. That's a good one. It's good. It's good. Yeah. And I have to. I did the studio tour two weeks ago because I live nearby. But yeah. you know what's have, has it changed in terms of obviously the the animation techniques have changed. But you know, for you, is it is it just the same atmosphere or? It you know like like anything else in life it changes. It 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 has changed since I arrived there in the 1950s. It was changing before I got there in the 1930s and 40s. So, and today, it's continuing to change. But the Disney magic is is always there. It's still there. Yeah, that's right. Thank you so, so very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, it's it's an honor to be. I will be at Sleeping Beauty tomorrow just because you're there. Wonderful. (laughs) We're both Disney fans. Exactly, exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, returning to the festival, we're so glad to have her back here, Mindy Johnson. Here we are at the 60th anniversary of this landmark film that transformed one of the great American art forms animation. This truly is the crown jewel of animation, Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty. It is my great joy to share with you today, we have two of the original animators on this film, and I'd like to call forward to join me on stage, Jane Shattuck Takamoto Bear and Floyd Norman. Here we are with two extraordinary animators now, 60 years, can you believe that much time has gone by? Goes by fast. Just been a few years. Of course, we were babies when we started. Yeah. <laughs> Five years old. <laughs> so you were two, right, Jane? Well, uh, speaking of just how young you were, let's oh. take a look. Just how young Jane was. <laughs> this is sort of your first, one of your earliest days on Lot, correct? Yes, I think I started in 55. So this was, I was just enchanted at the whole idea of being a Disney student. It's just uh, the event of my life. I had been going to art school with Floyd. We went to the same school at the same time. Art Center College of Design. <laughs> yeah. With no animation training, because back then they didn't have uh, uh, animation classes in the schools. So Disney trained in-house. And we started off by drawing Dalva. <laughs> I started with that. <laughs> so here's a quick photo within the D-wing of you, Jane. Now, don't let that photo on the right fool you. <laughs> Our sweet dear Jane has got a little bit of a devilish side. I have wings which you can't see. <laughs> And our young Floyd. Steve Merkel. (laughs) This was the first job for both of you, correct? Your first job in in as professionals. Yeah, it was. We were kids right out of school. Quite professionals. We were learning how to be professionals (laughs) and and being mentored by uh, awesome talents like the Nine Old Men and all of the. All of the animators who made the movies we saw as children. 
they were still there, as was Walt Disney. So it was an incredible time to be at the Walt Disney Studios, to work with some of the finest talent in the world. Uh, Ivan Earl was uh, designing the backgrounds for Sleeping Beauty. What a film to begin your career. I mean, this was a magnificent Disney masterpiece, and we were lucky enough to be a part of it. I worked on The Three Fairies, and I worked on Briar Rose, Agora, Aurora. <laughs> so we've got a couple of photos here with you and some of the other animators here. These have rarely been seen, so you're getting a, an extraordinary peek into the world at the time. These are in the legendary D-Wing of the Disney Studios. And um, you can get a sense here, we've got a few noted folks, now neither Jane or Floyd are in these images, but we have other folks there, Diane Keener, Sh Sheila Ray Brown, Stan Chen, Stan Chen, Bob Ray, Liz Wicker, Liz Case Wicker, yeah, on the upper right there, yeah. and uh, loaded with talent. These artists were all, but Liz Case Wicker was a fine artist in her own right, and you had to... <laughs> She wasn't fat, but she was She's very tall. Very tall. Yeah, big Liz. <laughs> Here they are, all yeah. together with a group. Again, this was pretty unusual. Um, there were quite a few, it was a, a real large number of animators working on the film, but men and women. Surprise. Around, around 600 artists worked on Sleepy Beauty. No, it was more like 600. Yeah, it was, it was quite, and, and the film took nearly five or six years to, to produce. Actual production, yeah, yeah. Beforehand. Yeah. It didn't move as fast as we had hoped because Walt Disney was preoccupied with another project. <laughs> a park down in Anaheim. <laughs> Yeah, and then there was television. He had gone into television with two, two TV shows, Disneyland and the Mickey Mouse Club, which I also worked on with Rolly Crumb. Well, we had a lot of free, free time. <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, you could go around a lot during your lunch hour, and we would peek in on the Mickey Mouse Club, which was being filmed. And then there was the Firehouse Five. I don't know if you've heard of that. It was Frank Thomas and who all was Ward Kimball. They, they would practice at lunchtime. And, and, and they would make quite a racket. But Walt Disney didn't mind. <laughs> Briar Rose, uh-huh. The Forest Scene, that was mainly a and the drawings were so meticulous that we didn't turn out a whole lot during the day, but uh, it had to be just so perfect. And then we had tough people uh, overseeing our artwork, so one of my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, was, yes, uh, she did. <laughs> uh, Mark Davis was the uh, uh, creator of uh, Briar Rose, Aurora, and uh, oh my God, she was detailed. I remember the eyes. Uh, we really had to have the eyes dead on. We didn't want any flickering because there were some close-ups. And I remember the important women who worked with Mark Davis on uh, Briar Rose. 
uh, Fran Marr and Doris Collins and Mary Anderson, Jane Fowler Boyd, yeah, a lot of women uh, worked on Aurora because the men, a lot of the men couldn't draw a Briar Rose because she was a very difficult character to draw. And you had to be so detail oriented and, and women were actually better at it than most of the most of the boys. Yeah. We have <laughs> Jane Fowler Boyd also did a little bit of live action reference work on Maleficent. Yes. And uh, yeah, Kimi uh, Tashima was also on board. So there were this was a really teeming campus and a, a fairly equal representation of men and women working on this film. Uh, unlike what a lot of people have been led to believe, uh, Disney wasn't um, concerned with gender or uh, race or anything. He was uh, very open to anyone who had talent. So that's why he was way ahead of his time as far as hiring women. And On the fairies, is that? I worked on the three good fairies: Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. <laughs> wonderful characters, voiced by Verna Felton, uh, Barbara Jo Allen, and Barbara Luddy, who provide the voices for those three wonderful little fairies, who really drove the film. You know, when you think about the lead characters in Sleeping Beauty, it's not so much Briar Rose; it's not so much the prince. <laughs> who really solve all the problems in the movie. <laughs> and, and they're hassled by Melissa, but you know, but they overcome her, so. Uh, I still think uh, Briar Rose was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you love Briar Rose. You love her. Yeah, she's very hard to draw, though. <laughs> Speaking of Briar Rose, the great Mary Costa, who is the voice of Princess Rose, unfortunately was not able to join us. She's got a very busy schedule back yes. in uh, her hometown, but she sends her best royal blessings to you all. She was uh, thrilled to hear that this was going to be happening, and that she certainly knows Floyd and Jane, and was delighted to hear that they would be here, so uh, she sends her best. Now, Jean, you also did a wee bit of work on the fairies as well, right? Uh, well, it wasn't so much the fairies as it was uh, the cake they made. Oh, <laughs> right, Now, oh, uh, let me, uh, not only the candles, but that was a big deal for me. So I first really delving into the animation field. I don't know if he used my work, but I like to think those are my candles. Your cake was melting. <laughs> if I recall, your, your cake was melting down. <laughs> Even as the film ended, you know, pink, pink, blue, pink, blue, pink. And it ended up blue. On the, uh, on the, on the fade out, on the fade out, I swore it was blue, the final color was blue. You're wrong. <laughs> now I can step in and resolve this. For each of you, what is probably your most lasting memory of this film over 60 years since. What, what stands out for each of you? I think for me it was being in D-Wing, so I got to work very closely with uh, four of the nine old men. Mark Davis, 
course. Uh, Milt Call, uh, Frank Thomas, and Polly Dustin. <laughs> walk into their room and ask them any question at any time. Well, you could. <laughs> well, it was pretty open. Yeah, they, they like the young women. <laughs> they were really mean to us. Bill <laughs> Cole was mean to you guys. Well, yeah, he was mean to everybody. No, not to you guys. Well, not to you guys. you shared some stories about his chest he would not have chess matches in his room at lunchtime and break time. Uh, if he was in a bad mood, he stayed away. Just one day, he didn't like to lose, and he was losing at chess, and we were all working away. Suddenly, the door flies open, and chess comes bouncing up the hallway, followed by the guy he literally picked up. The guy was playing with threw him out in the hallway. And the door slammed and the whole hallway shook. And you could hear a pin drop for the rest of the afternoon. Well, as we are today, what, as you watch the film again, and have you seen it recently or are you waiting for today? I haven't seen it in so long. Wow. I've forgotten when I've seen it a lot. <laughs> and they did, a, they did a, a, a restoration a few years ago, and, and uh, I saw the restoration, and the film looked as beautiful as it did when I saw it at the Walt Disney Studios back in 1958. The film was released in 1959. But what a gorgeous film, and, and uh, really, truly, the end of an era. Never again would such time uh, and money be uh, lavished on a production, Actually, yeah. because it was just too expensive to continue in that way. So it really is one of a kind. Yeah, it was so beautiful. The last of the hand-rendered artistry of Walt Disney Animation, and truly the premium inkers, uh, the last of the hand-inking in animation, this really is the zenith of, of the classics in animation. We have some wonderful advances in technology, but I would like to take this time to thank our panelists and to thank you guys for coming. Hi, Kristen. It's an honor to get to talk to you. The Bad Seeds is one of my favorite horror movies. Oh, so, please. I wanted to ask, you know, what was it like working with, with Nancy Kelly and Eileen Heckert, who are so, I mean, working along those women and, you know, you're a trio of amazing ladies well, at such a young age. Eileen Heckert like? has to be one of the greatest actresses. Right? Very unsung. Oh, yeah. And Nancy Kelly, of course, you know, was a so, huge theater actress and also a film actress when she was younger. During our run on Broadway is when our friendship cemented. But Eileen Heckard played the Mrs. Davis. She was more private. So she and I didn't communicate much, but Nancy Kelly and I did. Kind of think she kept in character a little bit. Well, I was way. gonna, I was gonna ask. Yeah. I mean, some of the scenes between you two are very intense. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what was that like to actually act them out? Oh, it's always fun. I mean, it's always fun, especially when it's clear what it's about, and you know you're on the right track. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how could it not be fun? I'm one of those, like when I watch the movie, I, I love your voice, the formalism and the accent that I, you kind of... I kind of imitated Nancy Kim. Really? I was going to ask, where did wow, that come because from? because I was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> okay. So, although I didn't totally sound it, but... The way you say Claude Daigle is like my thing. Like I try to imitate it and I never pull it off, but... It's amazing. You, you did the psychiatrist role in the remake, which I only I only watched because you were in it. <laughs> she was wonderful. The little girl. McKenna was Grace. Isn't yeah. She a good actress? I was gonna say, what was yeah. it like doing that very different look at nature versus nurture now? I know, I know. Well, it was it was a little campy because I got to say, you know, you remind, you remind me, me of me. myself. <laughs> so, but they they did that on purpose. So. Thank you so much. Thank the Czar Noir himself, Mr. Eddie Muller. Very nice of you. I was telling this crew over here that uh, I thought I would do this one with my glasses on <laughs> since I never wear them on television. I, they're not non-reflective glass, so I can't wear them. So you have no idea how hard it is to read a teleprompter without these glasses. Okay, you caught me in a really good mood because I'm still on a little bit of a Jacqueline Bissett high. <laughs> that was literally a dream come true to do that. And maybe they recorded that introduction because uh, that was about as effusive as I'm gonna get, I think. And we go from that one of my five favorite films of all time, Day for Night, to Open Secret. And I'm going to tell you that I think this is the biggest single crowd of people to ever watch this movie in one place. <laughs> <laughs> this is as B as B gets. <laughs> if they spent more than $2,000 on this film, I'll be amazed. Okay? That is not in any way reflective of the quality of this film, however, because as, as you know, the money doesn't have anything to do with it. It's the, it's the skill and the intentions of the filmmakers and their t inherent talent that makes a movie really great, interesting, intriguing, memorable, all of these things. Open Secret, I have a little bit of a relationship with this film in the sense that my Film Noir Foundation several years ago started you know we were always looking for lost films that we can restore and our specific thing is noir films we leave the other stuff to the film foundation and ucla but we were looking for films uh that really were lost and for whatever reason a number of these films were all made by the same director a man named john reinhardt and we were able to rescue a movie he did called The Guilty that was an adaptation of a Cornell Woolrich short story that is really fantastic. We were able to rescue a movie called High Tide, both of those starring the legendary Don Castle. Hey, Don. But there was another movie out there, Open Secret, that Reinhardt directed just about the same time that we did not find, but UCLA uncovered. And having seen these two other Reinhardt movies and seen what he could get out of nothing, uh, I'm happy to say that our colleagues at the UCLA Film and Television Archive just went right ahead and restored this movie on their own, without our help. And I love it when that happens. It costs us nothing, it's great. So John Reinhardt was a very interesting man. He is Viennese. 
came to the United States very early in his life. He was an actor, a writer, and a director. And he really made a mark in Hollywood, working in an area of Hollywood that even TCM doesn't really know that much about because it's, it, it really is lost. In the 1930s, the studios made foreign language versions of a lot of their films and a lot of original movies in foreign languages for markets in the United States and abroad, foreign-speaking markets. And although John Reinhardt was from Austria, he was fluent in Spanish, and he became very prolific making Spanish-language films. He went to Mexico and made a number of these movies. So his filmography is extensive, but not many people have seen a lot of that stuff because it's all in Mexico. Or if it's at the Fox archive, because he did most of this at 20th Century Fox, it is buried so deeply in there that nobody has yet bothered to pull it out. So there's a whole missing part of his filmography. But in the 1940s, he was back in Hollywood, and he teamed up with a screenwriter, Robert Presnell, to create a number of these movies. This is not one of them. But I believe that this movie, of which I know absolutely nothing about the producers of this film, because it is a one-off. It was made by, I believe it's Monarch Pictures, was the production company, and distributed through the short-lived Eagle Lion films. If, if you've watched Noir Alley, you've seen me present several Eagle Lion pictures, like He Walked by Night and Raw Deal and things like this. If you think those were B-movies, oh my God. <laughs> so this is 63 minutes long. I think there are a total of three sets in this movie. And, and I'm sure some of them are the same set, just repurposed by changing the furniture around a little bit. The point of this movie is that the guys who produced it very seriously wanted to take a look in the post-World War II environment at Nazis who were in America and had not yet given up. And it is a very terrifying and, dare I say, still timely subject. John Ireland plays a guy who goes to this small town with his wife, played by Jane Randolph, and uh, the buddy that he's coming to see has gone missing. And very gradually, he starts to learn that there's a deep, dark secret in this small town that is depicted rather graphically on occasion in the movie. The subject of a lot of the town's persecution, I'm not going to give any spoilers here or anything, but the guy who plays the character of Strauss is an actor named George Tyne, who would himself be the victim of the blacklist just a couple of years after this and have his career taken away from this guy could not win for losing. But I'm happy to say that George Tyne ended up getting his career back in the 1960s and went on to direct all sorts of television. He went from being blacklisted to directing Love American Style and all these things on TV. So it was quite a bounce back. I'm sure a lot of you know about John Ireland. He uh, quite a successful actor in Hollywood, played a lot of character roles nominated for Best Supporting Actor the year after he made this for his role in All the King's Men, married to Joanne Drew, and his voice is on a lot of movies in the 1940s as the voiceover narrator without even a credit. So a lot of times if there's a, a, a very distinctive baritone voice narrating the movie, if it's not Reed Hadley, it's probably John Ireland. So I'm very happy to present this movie. I'm really not going to tell you much about it because it's better if it just comes 
as a surprise. But I do want to just give that disclaimer. If you are here thinking you're going to see Hollywood glitz and glamour, uh, you better head out right now while you have the chance, because th this is as down and dirty as it got in 1948. Having said that, I am thrilled to see such a big audience in the house tonight. Greatly appreciated. Uh, if you see me around the festival after this, let me know what you thought of this movie. And now, without any further ado, here it comes, Open Secret. Thank you.